I don't believe for one moment that God selects some people and creates some people to go to hell and other people to go to heaven. And if you ever get that into your heart, I believe it will ruin your evangelistic zeal. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, and today we conclude a message entitled, Chosen from the Womb, in which Dr. Brogy looks at the doctrine of predestination or personal election to which some individuals and denominations ascribe. As we pick up, Pastor Carl ties Romans 9 back to Genesis 22 to show that the Old Testament quotes used by the Apostle Paul in this passage are dealing not with personal election, but rather national election. That is, that God chose the nation Israel over all other nations to bring forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So here's Isaac, and he knew of the land, the seed, and the blessing that God had promised to his father. And God will reiterate that promise, not only to Abraham, but to Isaac as well, up there on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. If you turn back a couple of pages to Genesis 22 in verse 16, if you remember, God had uh, had Abraham and Isaac go to the top of Moriah. And Abraham, when he left his servants behind, he said, we are going to worship and we are going to return. And the Hebrew first-person plural pronoun, we, is in both Hebrew verbs. We're leaving, we are coming back. And yet, he knew that his son was going to become a burnt offering on top of that altar. That by the time he was done, his son would not only be dead, he'd be turned into a pile of ashes. But he believed, without wavering, that God was going to bring life to that boy. That's what he believed, that's what he stood on that God would raise him from the dead because that's where he got him to begin with, from the deadness of Sarah's womb. And Isaac, he's not a young boy, if you remember at this point. He's around 20 years old. He carries on his back a picture of Messiah himself who dies himself on Mount Moriah, wood as he goes up that hill. That's no eight-year-old boy carrying the wood. That's a young teenager, possibly around 20, 21, 22 years of age. And he's much stronger and more powerful than his elderly father. And he certainly could have overpowered him. But he didn't like the Lord Jesus. He's going to give his life. He and faith is up there. We could speak also of the faith of Isaac. And so he goes and Abraham gets ready to thrust the knife. And literally the decision has been made, the writer of the Hebrews tells us. And it's at that moment that the angel of God stays his hand. And he tells him no. And he says, no, I've got another plan. And then he reiterates the Abrahamic covenant. And that's what I want you to see in verse 16. God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord in 22.16. You know, that's the way you really affirmed an oath. We used to say as kids, I'll put my hand on a stack of Bibles and say that. And then we really mean what we're saying. Or we'll say, I swear to God. And we really are supposed to be doing that in a court of law. When we put our hand on the Bible, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And we put our hand on the Bible. Our politicians typically put their hand on the Holy Scriptures when they take the oath of office. Well, God can't say, I swear to God, and that there's some God that he can swear to. 
So the text says, by myself I have sworn. I love that, declares the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So right after the angel of the Lord stops Abraham from putting a knife in Isaac's heart, he reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant. Now think about this. Isaac is married to Rebekah, been married 20 years, no children. And yet he knows that he is the son of promise. And so for his descendants to be like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the seashore, or like the dust on the earth, the three metaphors that God uses to describe the multiplicity of people, then his wife has got to get pregnant. And so he doesn't, unlike his father, The first time run ahead of God, he comes now in faith. He not only learns from Abraham's failure, he learns from Abraham's faith. And he knows, yes, God has to give us a baby. And so exercising human responsibility, he prays and she conceives. And by the way, that's the way you ought to pray. That's the way I ought to pray. We ought to find the promises of God and plead the promises of God. God, what did you promise? And God loves it when we take him at his word because that pleases him. And so she conceives and she has a baby. It's a marvelous thing that takes place. Now, uh, look at Genesis 25, turn over another page or so and look at verse 22. She gets pregnant and it's a very active pregnancy And we read in verse 22, and this is where our text comes from in Romans, in this chapter, but the children struggle together with her. So she gets pregnant with twins. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? Why is this this big struggle within me? So she went and she inquired of the Lord. She recognizes this is no ordinary pregnancy. She knows there's two children in her and they're struggling within her. And being the sensitive believer that she is, she doesn't just write it off. She goes and she inquires of God. Isaac was fortunate to have a wife who knew how to pray. She wanted to understand the will of God. And I am fortunate that God gave me a wife who knows how to pray, who knows how to wrestle with God on behalf of her children. So she went to inquire of the Lord. Verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, had she gone to some obstetrician in that day, and had had they had sonograms in that day, the obstetrician probably would say, oh, just relax, Rebecca, you got twins. That's why there's such a rumbling match going on in your womb. Everything's fine, they're healthy. But this woman is sensitive And she seeks the Lord God in the process. And God gives a divine sonogram, which he reveals some theology and some prophecy. Notice, two nations are in your womb. And as you know, one nation is named Yaakov, Jacob, the other is named Esau. Two peoples will be separated from your body. God is prophesying about the descendants of these two sons. These twin boys ultimately represent two nations. Now remember, years later, God renames Jacob to be Israel. And so he becomes the progenitor, the father of the Israelites. And Esau is going to marry a non-Jew. And he has become the father of the Edomites. Furthermore, we're told, and one people 
shall be stronger than the other. And indeed, the Jews were stronger than the Edomites. And if you remember your Old Testament, Israel had three key enemies, and the Edomites were one of them. But in God's mercy, they, the Jews' people were stronger. And then he says, notice, and the older shall serve the younger. That's Romans 9, verse 12 that we're reading today that Paul is quoting. So Paul says, listen, there are two nations in your womb. These two sons are going to become progenitors of two peoples. Now, go to the last book of the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, just find Matthew. Go to Matthew 1 and turn back a page or two, and you will come to Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. So verse 12 is a quotation from Genesis 25. The older will serve the younger. The second statement, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, that comes from the book of Malachi chapter 1. The book of Malachi is a fascinating little book. It opens with these words in verse 1, the oracle of the Lord, of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. He has an oracle or a word from God, and it's the word that means a burden. In other words, he not only has a word from God, but it's a message that comes with a deep, heavy burden attached to it. And if you know this prophet, you know his writing style is unique. No one is like him in all the Old Testament. Rather than just making direct proclamations and charges, in this little short book, he introduces six messages, six sins that characterize the people of Israel. And he not only uncovers the sin, but then he anticipates the response that the people will give. And so he asks and answers his own questions. Notice the attitude of Israel as it's revealed in Malachi's day. In verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say... How have you loved us? I suppose those are some of the most pathetic words written in this whole book, maybe in all the Old Testament. God says, I love you. And the people say, huh? What do you mean you love us? They were doubting God's love because of all of the hardship, most of which they brought upon themselves through their own sin. But God does not answer a silly question with a silly answer. When the people say, how have you loved us, the Hebrew people? That's the emphasis in there. How have you loved us? God stoops down and he meets them where they are. And God answers precisely how he has loved them. Notice, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Here's our quotation from Romans 9, 13. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, what precisely does that mean? Doesn't it bother you to hear God say, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau? And again, many read this text of Scripture, and they conclude that before these babies were born, before they saw the light of day, God destined for one baby to go to heaven, and God made the other baby to go to hell. Well, let's talk about this for just a second. What does it mean in this quotation when Paul says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? He is not speaking about one going to heaven and the other going to hell. As in Romans 9 through 11, he's talking about two different nations that are going to come from his womb, from her womb. The chosen people called Israel and the Edomites who descend from Esau. So we need to ask an important question. You might be thinking, well, pastor, is God saying that he emotionally, passionately, hates Esau or the Edomites. He's talking about the descendants here in the context. And he emotionally loves the Jews. 
Well, very often in Scripture, the word hate is an idiom, and this is no exception. This is what we would call a Hebraism or a figure of speech. And very often the word in Hebrew just means to love less. And I'll give you some illustrations to prove that. For instance, in Genesis 29, remember Jacob? When he wants to marry and he works for seven long years to marry this gal, Rebecca, you know, he loved her. And then uh, his future father-in-law tricks him and gives him Leah instead of Rebecca. And we read after that took place, he agrees to work for another seven years, but he gets her and uh, we read in 2930. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel. More than Leah. Please note, nothing is said about hate. It just says he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. And then we're told in the next verse of that chapter, verse 31, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So God saw that she was unloved. If you have the English Standard Version, it renders it, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, that's literally what the Hebrew text says. When God saw that she was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So the word unloved or hated is a Hebraism that just means to love less. And so by way of comparison, Moses is reminding us that he loved Rachel so much that in comparison, it's like he hated her. He simply loved her less. By the way, Jesus uses the same idiom in the New Testament, when he speaks about the cost of discipleship. Remember in Luke chapter 14? Let me read it to you from verse 26. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, did the Lord Jesus mean that you should literally hate your father and mother? Clearly not, because he has also taught, as revealed in the Gospels, that you are to love them and you are to honor them. But he's using a comparative term, that you are not to love father and mother more than you love him. Did Jesus mean that I am literally to hate my wife? No, I am to love her as Christ loved the church. That by comparison, his love is to supersede my love for her. He is to be number one. She is to be number two. And that's the way she would like it because she knows that when the Lord is number one, I'm going to love her all the more. Again, it's a term of comparison. On another occasion, whole different day, he doesn't use the idiom, but he teaches the same truth. Let me read it to you from Matthew 10, verse 37. There he said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy than me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy than me. So very clearly, the prophet Malachi is not talking about heaven or hell. He's talking about two nations. And he's comparatively speaking that of all the nations of the world and out of these two babies that came out of Rebecca's womb, how as I love you, I chose you to be the people from which the Messiah would come. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And if you think about it, you cannot have one quality without the other. You cannot have hot without cold. You cannot have big without small. You cannot have high without low. There cannot be love without hate. There can't be love without choice involved. Don't tell me you love God if you you don't hate pornography. Don't tell me you love God if you don't hate drugs. 
Don't tell me you love God if you don't hate getting drunk. Don't tell me you love God if you don't hate abortion. You cannot have one without the other. And so in God loving Jacob over the Esau, he is making a choice of one nation over the other. He's not talking at all about one, na- one person going to heaven and the other going to hell. Now it's going to get even clearer, God willing, next time. But let's go ahead and apply the text today. What lessons can we learn? Because God is not just speaking to the church at Rome. He's speaking to the church here in Beaufort. This is God's inspired, infallible, eternal word, and there's application for us today. Number one, I am reminded from this passage of Scripture that election is intended by God to be reassuring. It's intended to be reassuring. Most people, when they think of the doctrine of election, they think of something rather negative. But it's really intended to be something that's very reassuring. God wanted to reassure the nation of Israel in Malachi's day of just how much he loved them. And how does he reassure them? Because I chose you. That didn't begin with them. That began with God. It had nothing to do with the boys, whether they had done anything good or bad. It had everything to do with God's sovereign choice. It began with him. And if you think about the doctrine of election and you apply it to people today, it's a very reassuring doctrine. Because salvation didn't begin with you. You didn't get the bright idea one day, I think I'll read some books on Christian apologetics and figure it out on your own and come to Jesus on your own. No, Paul will tell the church at Corinth, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The initiative began with God Almighty. It always begins with him. And God in his foreknowledge, his prognosco, as he looks down the corridors of time, seeing that his initiative is not with just some men, and he leaves the rest to go to hell, but with all men, he saw how people would respond. And those are called the elect in Scripture. And when God chose you, when he elected you, the Bible says he chose you to be holy and blameless in his sight that the salvation he completed, Philippians 1, 6 says, he's going to complete. And just as God didn't love Israel as a nation with a temporary love, but with an eternal, uh, everlasting love, so he loves his people today. So when you really think about the doctrine of election and God's work, whether it's with nations or individuals, it's very reassuring. Secondly, I'm reminded from this chapter of Scripture that just as God calls Israel to be his people, And just as God calls all men to be his people, this does not mean all that all will be saved. Clearly not. They are his chosen people, and in that sense, his children, as the Old Testament describes it. But that does not mean that every Jew went to heaven. So Paul's heart is broken, and he will begin with an earnest prayer in 10.1, a prayer that is nonsense if it's all predetermined. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So while you see God's plans are for entire nations, there are personal choices made within that nation. And so again, we saw all of Israel come out of Egypt, but we saw in the rebellion of Korah a whole group of Jewish people, as well as some rough-necked Egyptians who came out and they're swallowed up literally into hell. And so while the the nation, God has a plan for the nation, there are still individual choices within the nation that people have to make. I flew recently with my wife to the city of Dallas, and everyone on that airplane was headed to that city. It was determined we were going to Dallas, and there was nothing I could do about it once the plane got off the runway. 
But while we're in that plane, there are individual decisions we could make. We could have a Coke or we could get booze. We didn't do the latter. We could have peanuts or we could have pretzels. They gave us a choice on that flight. There were individual personal choices within that destiny. God destined the Jewish people to be his chosen people, but there are individual choices that they make within that nation. And God in his sovereignty calls all men to himself. His call goes out through the ends of the earth, but while many are called, few are chosen because not everyone decides for Jesus. Now understand, it all begins with God. God is the sovereign Lord that he is. He's over the affairs of men and nations, and he's over his people Israel. And we saw last time that one of the reasons men like John Calvin and St. Augustine and Martin Luther said such awful, hateful things that they will have to apologize for. If you weren't here, I gave you the exact quotes last week. And I'm sure their hearts were broken when they met the Lord in heaven and had to confess those things. Nonetheless, they thought that God was done with Israel. And because they thought that God was done with the Jewish people, the only way they can approach Romans 9 is individual election. But we saw these seven promises that God gave. It doesn't say to whom belong these promises, but to whom in verse 4 belongs, present tense, these promises. And I read to you last time from the prophet Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I also will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. He's saying, listen, it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with me. I made this covenant with Israel and you can no more change it than you can measure the earth or you can change the fixed order of the moon and the stars. Now, I say all that to say this. I don't believe for one moment that God selects some people and creates some people to go to hell and other people to go to heaven. And if you ever get that into your heart, I believe it will ruin your evangelistic zeal. Now, I know a handful of Calvinists in the history of church, and I would say only a handful, and I love church history, and I've read it extensively. And I think I can say authoritatively only a handful were passionate towards the call of evangelism. Well, I know all their arguments in evangelism and the sovereignty of God, that God has already elected some so we can go out and evangelize and expect people to believe. But the fact of the matter is, is that most reform movements do not grow by evangelistic zeal. They grow either by biological growth or, uh, you know, within their families, or by transfer growth. And if you talk to missiologists, you will see that the majority of the missionaries that are going out into the world today to preach the gospel are not coming from the Reformed circles. They're coming from evangelicals who are not Calvinistic in their theology. Now, somebody might say, well, Pastor, I'm a Calvinist, and I believe I ought to share my faith. Wonderful, and I hope you do, but I want to ask you a serious question. When was the last time God used you personally to introduce someone to Jesus? See, it's a big talk, 
but in my view, it is poisoning the church. And these are men that I love, and I'm glad they have the gospel. But it is destroying the evangelistic zeal. Paul, when he met with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, said this, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent from the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul sensed some deep human responsibility. And really, he's taking this description from the prophet Ezekiel. If you know Ezekiel, in 33, it says, verse 6, But if the watchman sees the sword coming does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and a sword comes and takes a person from them. He is taken away in his iniquity. The watchman is, the person is, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. We're like watchmen on a wall. And God has told us to warn people. And it's not some fake invitation to escape the wrath of God. It is a real invitation. That yes, you can be saved. And I don't have to couch all my evangelism that God loves you if you repent and believe. And if you will hear some people say that, what they're saying is they don't believe Jesus died for all men, but only for those who would repent and believe. Listen, salvation is for everyone in this room and everyone within the sounds of my voice. And if you die and you go to hell, it is not God's fault. It is your fault. Because you rejected God's plan of salvation. God seeks all, but like the people in that airplane, we have individual choices to make. And that does not make God any less sovereign because God in His sovereignty chose to do it that way. Now don't think for a moment that when you get to heaven that you are there because of your own predisposed will because that's not how it started. If you did something to bring yourself to Christ, then you'll be patting yourself on the back in heaven. But nobody will be patting themselves on the back. We will fall down on our faces and thank God that He opened up our dead hearts and we will give glory to the Lamb who is on the throne. Now maybe like the people in Malachi's day, you're wondering really, does God love me? And I would say yes. How does he love me? And God would say with outstretched hands, I love you this much. And if you will come to him today through the cross, you are welcome no matter who you are or whatever you've done. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you this morning that you so love the world that you gave your only son, but we must respond. Help someone today to respond. Help someone today who's unsure of their salvation to say, Lord Jesus, Save me. And Father, I thank you for my Reformed brothers, so many of them that are true and faithful to so many issues that others are ignoring. But I pray that you would protect my heart from ever thinking that anyone and everyone cannot possibly be saved. And I don't intend, you know, Father, to understand it all. But I understand this much, that whosoever will may come. And help us in this brand new week to be faithful with the gospel, to look for opportunities, to pray for opportunities, to tell the people around us that Christ died and was raised for them. May we be obedient to this great commission, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's study entitled, Chosen from the Womb, in which Dr. Brogy from Romans chapter 9 looks at God's choosing Israel to bring forth the Savior, 
Use our Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Perhaps you'd like a CD or a DVD copy. If so, just call us at 877-787-7478 and ask for program ROM46. Maybe you have a question you'd like Pastor Brogy to answer personally. You can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. That's between 11 and noon Eastern. Tomorrow, we begin a look at the mercy and judgment of God as we continue our study in Romans chapter 9. Join us then as we search the scriptures. Mm -hmm.